Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. Tristan, share with me your childhood memories of the Italian-Canadian press. Well, growing up in Montreal, uh, when my dad was living in the St. Leonard part of Little Italy, you know, I mostly remember this this big glossy news magazine called Panorama Italia, full of ads for expensive brands and items and tours for Italian destinations. Where would you see it? I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you'd find at the, say, like Milano, the big Italian grocery on, on St. Laurent Boulevard. You know, you would just find a stand full of them and you'd pick one up. And was it like all about luxury celebrity lifestyles or would you see like people from the community in, in the magazine? It was very community focused, actually. It was very much like local young business people who are making a mark for themselves and they're always well dressed and well made up. And the photos of those people are, you know, quite glamorous. This might be a useful point of uh, distinction and comparison between our respective communities. Like, <laughs> I have very different memories. Our uh, ethnic press, the Canadian Jewish News, that was like the opposite of what you just described. I mean, this was the, the newspaper of last resort on my parents' kitchen table uh, or, or like my Aunt Sylvia's coffee table if I was trying to find something to read as a kid. Like, the paper did not look good. Nobody in the newspaper looked good. Nobody was showing off. Like, it, it was like if, if, if you saw somebody that you knew in the Canadian Jewish News, it was either like um, like an awkward black and white blown out overexposed photograph under a headline like – Hanukkah concert enjoyable. Or maybe they had just like written an angry rant about Israel for the fourth time, or you would see them in there when they were dead. Yeah, no, it's nice to hear that Italian Canadians um, had something a bit more upbeat, I guess, to read about themselves. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that was my experience. But in speaking with my dad, he had mentioned that his was something more of a political one and that there were sort of two rival papers in Toronto. When I was organizing the Italian community, I was involved with people who were involved in the Italian newspapers. On the one hand, there was a strong connection to the right wing. So there was an attempt with the second paper to shift it more to the left, if you will, rather than trying to uphold the old Mussolini and the fascist concepts, right? That was Tristan Capicione, our audio editor, and his dad, Olino. All the times we've looked at the ethnic press in various communities in Canada, like, it's so revealing. Like, the most interesting stuff is usually not what's written, but the stuff behind the scenes. If we dig a little, we, we've usually found all of these conflicts and neuroses of a community that are reflected in the rivalries between newspapers, uh, ownership issues, connections to the homeland, uh, battles between various factions— it's very emotional stuff for immigrants and and for Gen 2 and for Gen 3, like how they are perceived within their own communities. Very emotional, very personal. And these newspapers, magazines, they're like home base for those perceptions. And I'm talking about this right now because that is the rabbit hole that reporter and writer Marcello De Cintio fell into for us. Today, Marcello is going to take us down that rabbit hole with him through this wild maze that is the history of the Italian press in Vancouver. This is a story today that involves a pro-Mussolini newspaper that the Mounties shut down. This involves a gold mine fraud. It involves the Italian government funding a Canadian newspaper. 
I don't want to say secretly. I'm not sure it was a secret, but I'm also not sure if anyone knew about it. This story involves a Sophia Loren hoax, uh, a shady publisher of ambiguous origins who a lot of people are trying to track down right now and, and, and who may or may not currently be in Romania. As I said, Marcello fell down a rabbit hole for this one, but he did not do that on purpose. All he wanted to do when this all began was get payback from the people who stole from him. Wait for it. I first heard of Giorgio Moretti when he stole one of my stories. In 2015, as I walked past the racks of free newspapers in the doorway of Spolombo's Deli, I spotted a story I'd written on the cover of the rather grandiosely named European Times. The paper had reprinted, without my knowledge or permission, a profile of an Italian bakery I'd written for Swerve. I emailed an invoice to European Times, charging them an unauthorized reprint fee of $500. My phone rang almost immediately, and a woman I didn't know started yelling. She claimed the bakers paid me to write the story and had the right to give the story to European Times. This was not true. Swerve paid me. All I received from the bakers was a branded toque with the words bun expert embroidered on the back. The shouting woman also accused me of trying to take advantage of someone with an accent and said if I wanted to see any money, I'd have to stand in front of a judge. So I did. I filed a civil suit against European Times and the paper's owner, Giorgio Moretti. I suspect the woman who yelled at me was Anna Marie Moretti, Giorgio's wife. Moretti dodged all my attempts to serve the court documents by mail or in person, and I eventually secured a court order allowing me to serve Moretti electronically. A court date was eventually set for March 2016. No one representing European Times appeared, and the judge awarded me just under $1,400. I would never see this money. Moretti had stopped publishing European Times and decamped to Vancouver earlier that spring, I decided not to pursue him across the provincial border, but I maintained an interest in Moretti. I learned he purchased another newspaper in Vancouver called Il Marco Polo. And that's how I accidentally became obsessed with the colorful history of Vancouver's Italian press and the role the press had in both uniting and dividing the community. Chapter 1. Vancouver. Open City. In 1955, Pierino Mori and Pietro Minardi drove a truckload of Italian cars from Windsor to Vancouver. En route, the friends bought and read copies of the Toronto Italian language weekly Corriere Canadese. Vancouver's Italians had lacked such a newspaper since 1940 when the RCMP shut down the pro-Mussolini rag Leco Italo Canadese after Canada declared war on Italy. So, in 1956, Mori and Mirardi launched Leco d'Italia, the popular weekly newspaper supported by ads for local Italian grocers, tailors, and taxi companies, combined news from Italy with locally written stories. The paper quickly became a unifying force in Vancouver's Italian community. Mori and Minardi's editorials advocated for improved services for newcomers from Italy, for example, and within the first year of publication, helped establish the Italian Immigrants Assistance Center. But not everything Lecco printed was so serious. 
Pia Tofini worked for the paper at the time and recalls the events of the spring of 1962. The paper announced Italian movie stars Sofia Loren and Vittorio De Sica were visiting Vancouver and would be arriving by train on the 1st of April. Our phones in the office started so dusk go wild. When is he coming in? Is it for sure? And then they said, oh, we just phoned the railway station and they confirmed it because they caught on to the hype and said, it must be true because everybody is talking about it. So they would answer, yeah, yeah, the train is coming in at four o'clock. And then we made a big sign and I had it on, on a stick like this. And I would walk around with the stick. Welcome, Sophia. And then at four o'clock, I would drop it open and they saw the fish and then I ran. 300 fans showed up at Great Northern Station. Parents dressed up their children in their Sunday best, and the Consul General showed up with a bouquet of roses for Lorraine. But it was all a farce. April Fools. So the whole thing was made up like a real good fake news story. It was the biggest April Fools Day joke that anybody has done in Vancouver. There were thousands of people there. All the parents would come with their little kids dressed to the nines, all in their Sunday bests, because they thought they could maybe even get discovered. Well, by one of her agents, and all the guys with their hair slicked back and with brill cream or whatever they used in those days. It was absolutely priceless. It reached the news in Italy. Sophia Lauren thought it was a gas. Chapter 2. Il Giudice. The Judge. I doubt good-humored men like Mori and Minardi ever intended for Lecco to end up dividing the community they strove to bring together. But in 1974, the paper became a battleground in a vicious civil war of sorts, a war over the construction of an Italian community center. I reached out to Anna Foschi, a Vancouver journalist with a long history of working for the city's Italian language media. In the 70s, when the local community wanted to build a center, a community center, there were two groups, and one group was led by the new sort of newcomers at the time, and they wanted to build the center. The other group was led by the famous judge, Angelo Branca, and he was probably the most powerful man in the Italian community for many decades, because he was a lawyer, and then he was um, the first judge, appointed judge to the bench of Italian origin, he was born in Vancouver Island. The parents were Italians, uh-huh. immigra- Italian immigrants, but yeah. it was um, second generation. The war over the center captured the heart of what it meant to be an Italian in Canada at the time. The community was split into two factions. On one side, those who carried disdain for the new notion of official multiculturalism. There are in history, there are moments where it's like a great divide between the past and the future. The people that supported Branca, they were immigrants, but they had come in times and in a culture that asked you to assimilate, to become Canadian, a hyphenated Canadian. And they had embraced that culture. Yes, they were making wine at home. They were making pasta and fiki secchi and pomodori and tomatoes. And everyone has a story about their mom (laughs) or their nonna making. But that is not the essence of a culture 
almost all of the old generation did not speak Italian. The language is not so important, but it's still, it's still a glue that keeps mm-hmm. people together. So they had a very different mentality that they didn't, they wanted to be Canadians first. Meanwhile, the relative newcomers from Italy and 13 Italian associations that formed the Italian Folk Society supported building the center. The generation that wanted to build the center had different aspirations. They were more planted in the future. They were already in between. They wanted to be good Canadians, but uh, not to the point they felt their allegiance, their identity was Italian first, Italian old country. That's why they built the center, Mm -hmm. to have a place to go to have a place where they could meet, they could speak their dialects or language and keep their identity strong. The pro-center camp had the support of the provincial government, but Branca, by then a court of appeal justice nicknamed Il Guadice, or the judge, exercised tremendous influence. Everyone knew Branca unapologetically aided the RCMP in rounding up Italian Canadians for internment camps during the Second World War. Vancouver's Italians feared crossing him. Branca also had Leco d'Italia in his corner against the construction of the community center. Seeing the sway the paper had in the debate, local radio host Rino Voltaggio stepped in. Voltaggio recruited Anna Tirana, another Italian cultural center proponent, and the pair of them decided to start another Italian community paper to challenge Leco d'Italia and advance the center's cause. In 1974, they launched Il Marco Polo. Judge Branca, we just wanted a hall where the Italians could dance and drink and, and be happy. And, and that was the problem. And it was a big battle. So what did we do? We started our own paper. Tarana's dining room table was Marco Polo's first press room. The pages of Marco Polo and Leco d'Italia became the front line in the battle over the center. Marco Polo ran stories covering the sorts of events the new center would host, while Leco ran headlines criticizing how the Italian consulate was interfering in local affairs. The two sides sniped back and forth at each other in open letters and letters to the editor. Ideological differences escalated into personal insults and, occasionally, into threats. I used to get calls in the middle of the night that were threatening me, Tarana told me. If the newly founded Marco Polo's primary purpose was to advocate for Vancouver's Italian cultural center, the paper succeeded. The center opened in 1977. Even the opposing newspaper, Lecco, gave the opening warm coverage despite all the preceding ugliness, calling the center a triumph for all Italians. The volunteers who ran Marco Polo, though, were exhausted. Tirana remembers it being an enormous amount of work. She did most of the writing and editing. The load was too much for a single mother already working a day job. It was on my shoulders, she said. Every time the paper came out, it was a miracle. By the end of 1978, Tirana had reached the end of her rope. Four years later, it's okay, now the center is built. The center is in good hands. And I'm not going to to continue. And uh, so the, the paper collapsed. Leco d'Italia, though, carried on under a new owner named Rano Azzi and a tiny staff who produced the paper by hand. In the summer of 1981, Anna Foschi immigrated from Florence to Vancouver. 
She showed up with a typewriter, but little sense of where to go from there. We didn't know what to do. Honestly, I was pretty lost. That summer, overcome by a wave of homesickness and nostalgia, Foschi tapped out a story about the rituals of an Italian summer holiday she'd left behind. I wrote one piece, and then I went to the newspaper office that was on Commercial Drive and brought my stuff, and I said, what do you think? Do you think you can publish it? And so Aruano took a look and said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I said, do you think you can pay me something? No, but if you bring me another one next week. I meekly said, okay. <laughs> and I started to write, and um, then he said if I wanted to work at the newspaper, of course, he couldn't pay me much, but it would be it would have been a regular salary. I took it, and yeah. I worked there. You know, the newspapers back then, there was no digital edition. So we were doing everything from sweeping the floors to writing articles, interviews, to collecting payments, you name it. This began Fusky's relationship with the paper that has spanned nearly four decades. Vancouver's Italian community was particularly active during those first years. You know, the people would buy the paper, sit at the cafes on commercial drive, and then discuss it, and of course argue, and uh, curse uh, this or that, curse. <laughs> but it was life, you know, it was alive. So that's where the importance of the paper. The paper always included news and sports scores from Italy and served to connect Italians in Vancouver with their cultural homeland. More importantly, though, the paper connected Vancouver's Italians to each other. The strength of that paper is the local news. That's the real strength, because you can find an article about the banquet of the ladies' club, and no, no other paper would publish that in Vancouver. Uh, you can find, uh, for example, so-and-so are celebrating their 55th anniversary, uh, you know, matrimony anniversary, and a service about, you know, a sort of an article. Chapter 3. New Name, New Owner. The paper operated under several owners during the years that followed, including a decade-long stint as the arm of an international congregation of media-savvy Catholic missionaries called the Scalabriani Fathers. Rino Voltaggio, radio host and head of the short-lived Marco Polo, took over Lecco in 1994. Voltaggio was an icon in the community and seemed a natural choice to head Lecco. Voltaggio immigrated to Canada from Milan in 1968. He mined asbestos and washed dishes in Cassiar before opening the Tivoli Photo Studio on Vancouver's Commercial Drive. Since helping to shepherd the Italian Cultural Center Ennio Marco Polo into existence, Voltaggio had hosted Italian language programs on radio and television and launched four restaurants, including Il Favorito, where he and his wife worked the kitchen. Considering the historical antipathy between Voltaggio and Leco d'Italia dating back to the battle over the center, Voltaggio couldn't bear working for a newspaper called Lecco. So, within a couple of years, Voltaggio changed the name of the paper to Il Marco Polo, simultaneously burying Lecco and resurrecting the paper's chief rival he'd started two decades earlier. Not everyone wanted Voltaggio in charge. Michele Coviello, 
the paper's production technician and former editor, stayed on as the paper changed hands and names. By his account, Il Marco Polo quickly started to lose money. Voltaggio had no idea what the hell he was doing, Coviello said. But then in late 1990s, the paper couldn't cover their rent. Coviello remembers Voltaggio summoning him to the Il Marco Polo office in the middle of the night. They packed everything into boxes and shuttled everything to a new building, skipping out on the rent they owed. Coviello recalls other dodgy practices during those years. Rather than selling advertising to raise revenue, for example, Voltaggio exchanged ad space for in-kind services. Reno would get his car paid for through advertising, Coviello told me. Shopping, groceries, things like that, and the income nixed. But the bulk of Marco Polo's revenue did not come from advertising or subscriptions. It came from the Italian government. Italy's Department for Information and Publishing supports Italian language media companies abroad in the form of annual operating grants. Eligible publications must adhere to strict guidelines, among them the rules forbidding portraying women or their bodies in an offensive way, for example. The department website shows that between 2003 and 2015, Voltaggio's last year with the paper, Leco d'Italia received more than 310,000 euros from the Italian government. Nearly all of this funding appears to be paid directly to Voltaggio himself. The Italian consulate issued payments according to, among other factors, the cost of production and the number of hard copies the paper produces. Coviello claims Voltaggio altered printing invoices to exaggerate Marco Polo's print run in order to request increased funding. None of Coviello's claims can be substantiated, of course. Still, I appreciated Coviello's candid recollections about the goings-on behind the scenes at Marco Polo. I was the only one who knew everything, he told me. Not quite. Even Coviello didn't know who actually owned the newspaper. Voltaggio told an interviewer that he purchased Lecco outright in the mid-1990s. According to the BC corporate records, however, the ownership of the paper appears far less straightforward. Voltaggio incorporated Marco Polo at least three times between 1996 and 2000, each with a different company name, different registration number, and different office address. Each company issued separate annual reports to the BC government. Then there was the matter of the Papalia twins and their gold mine. Chapter 4, The Papalia Twins Sometime in the mid-1990s, around the time of Voltaggio's takeover of what was then still Leco d'Italia, the paper started running curious stories every three or four months about a gold mine at Port Douglas in the BC interior. The mine was owned, or at least controlled, by Robert and Anthony Papalia, identical Sicilian twins who were raised in Montreal and were known for more than just mining. Scotland Yard arrested the Papalia twins in 1977 in connection with a plot to defraud investors through a company claiming to have a gold mine on Texada Island. The twins spent 18 months in jail, or at least Robert did. Anthony escaped from his detention center in a caper the press described as the Great Mafia Escape. Lurid headlines aside, and in fairness to the twins, British prosecutors never provided evidence of any mob links to the Papalia's crimes. The court acquitted them. Five years later, Anthony Papalia was convicted of securities fraud in Vancouver and sentenced to two years less a day, but the appeal court overturned the conviction. Then, in 1988, 
the RCMP accused the twins of manipulating the stock price of a company they controlled and charged Robert with issuing a false prospectus. The courts eventually dropped the charge, but the Vancouver Stock Exchange banned the Papalias from serving as directors of any VSE companies. The extent of Papalia's involvement with Voltaggio and Marco Polo remains a mystery, but their interest in the paper seems clear enough. Here's journalist Anna Foschi again. I think that maybe there was some gold, but not enough, so people moved up to Alaska back then. Port Douglas became a ghost town, and that stayed stayed that way for a long time. Somehow the Papalia bought the mine and the rights to everything. The Papalia were connected to Reno mostly because they were Sicilians, all of them. And there is a strong kinship here. This was reflected in the coverage Reno produced for the paper. He published articles, explanations about the history of the mines and how the mine was going to be a really excellent investment. The Papalias were using favorable coverage in Marco Polo to encourage readers to buy shares in their mine, and not just readers in Vancouver. They had uh, subscribers in Europe as well, and in the States. It was not a huge paper, but it was branching out. It was not just BC. It was also in the interior of the province, not just Vancouver like now. And there are people with money. Then suddenly the Papalias were gone. They just disappeared, Coviello told me. As for the mine at Port Douglas, Foskey doubts there was ever any gold there at all. Chapter 5. Giorgio Moretti scores a never-ending story. In 2016, Voltaggio sold the paper to someone named Giorgio Moretti, who just arrived in Vancouver from Calgary with Anna Marie. No one in Vancouver's Italian community had ever heard of the Morettis. But I had. The circumstances around Moretti's acquisition of Marco Polo are as opaque as the rest of the paper's ownership history. I heard that Voltaggio, dying of cancer at the time, sold the paper to Moretti on the condition that he would keep receiving the Italian grant money for two years after the sale. In another rumor, Moretti didn't properly read the contract Voltaggio gave him and unwittingly took on the paper's $70,000 debt. Regardless of the terms of the sale, Moretti's arrival at Marco Polo was rough. There was a very, very tempestuous, very stormy period. Moretti's abrupt firing of the paper's four-person staff led to such a fracas, someone called the police. Despite this rocky beginning and my personal grievance with Moretti, I can't help but wonder if he was the ideal candidate to take over Marco Polo. In a community scarred by long-established feuds and the sort of petty quarrels that, for example, compelled people to scratch their rivals' names from bocce trophies on display at the center, Moretti carried no baggage. Besides, Moretti's own quirks seem at home with the other outside characters that populate Il Marco Polo's story, like Branca and Voltaggio. Rino was no Stinco de Santo, Foschi said, no Saint's Shin, but Moretti was different. There is something very disquieting about him. His personality can change so, and it's the, uh, the arrogance he has sometimes, and uh, the lack of empathy. 
On the other hand, it can be totally, totally charming, can give the impression that you would put a red carpet out for you. So I understand your interest because in his own small dimension, Giorgio Moretti is a fascinating person. In interviews, Moretti gives his birthplace ambiguously as Europe. But Foschi told me Moretti was born in Budapest to a Sicilian father and a Hungarian Transylvanian mother. After working with him for five years, Foschi remains unsure what language Moretti speaks. I never understood what language he really masters because his Italian is quite limited. His English is very questionable. Moretti lived in Quebec for 15 years while studying engineering, so he speaks decent French. I'd say it's better than his English, Foschi told me. And he says that he speaks Hungarian, but not fluently at all. At the beginning of the pandemic, Moretti decided to cease production of the print edition and publish Marco Polo only online. There were no local events to cover, after all, and few people were leaving their homes to pick up copies anyway. Then, in June 2020, Moretti went to Romania. Foschi said he has a house there that needed renovating. Nobody knows when he will return. You have no idea, Marcello, how many people are calling me on the phone or run into me at the Italian stores and ask me, so what is going on with the paper? Is it ever going to sort of come back here? I have no idea because I tried two or three times to ask, I have his, uh, you know, a messenger, I, I can call him or write, but I never get a straight answer. Foschi and the other Marco Polo contributors continue to send Moretti articles and stories via email, and he uploads them to the Marco Polo website. However, the Italian government will only fund newspapers that offer print editions. Without those grants, the paper might not survive. And no one knows what is going to happen when it comes back, because I would say everybody I've been talking to, their opinion is that the Marco Polo will go down. Chapter 6. Fata Morgana. I thought about what Vancouver's Italians might lose if they lose Marco Polo. The need for such a paper has diminished. In the 50s and 60s, Italians arrived in Canada with few prospects, little education, and almost certainly no English. Severed from home, these new Italians bonded with the Italians that arrived before them. They had no one else. Newspapers like Lecco and Marco Polo kept them abreast of what was happening in their adopted community while maintaining a link to home, even if just for sports scores or celebrity gossip. This generation of Italian Canadians formed a loyal readership for the newspaper but their numbers are dwindling. Their children and grandchildren get the news from the internet like everyone else. Italians have satellite television to provide their favorite soap operas and Serie A soccer matches. They can watch the nightly news from Rome in real time. And new immigrants from Italy hardly resemble the lonely laborers of my grandparents' generation. Newly arrived Italians remain connected to old friends and family in Italy through technology and social media and don't need to engage with Italians already here. If these new Italians don't need a local community, do they need a local community newspaper? Maybe they do. Foschi said that a constant feature of the community over the years is that everybody has a desperation, an anxiety, a yearning for recognition. Official accolades are hard to come by and medals of honor rarely get hung around blue collars. 
Nobody bestowed Italians like my grandparents, who labored on construction sites and in dry cleaners, any awards. Not everyone can get inducted into the Italian Cultural Center's Hall of Fame or win Immigrant of the Year, Foschi said. She's been awarded both. But the pages of Marco Polo and Lecco before it offer a modicum of celebrity to the otherwise uncelebrated. The Vancouver Sun won't cover the annual banquet of the ladies' club. The province won't run a story about a couple celebrating their 55th wedding anniversary. But the organizers of the Calabria Cultural Society dinner might find their names in Marco Polo. If they're lucky, or especially assertive with a photographer, they might even get their picture in the paper. I wanted to talk to Moretti about the future of Marco Polo. Unsurprisingly, he didn't answer my questions. Aside from Foschi, none of the current or recent writers from Marco Polo responded to any of my emails. Those who knew of my dispute with Moretti distrusted my intentions and didn't want to get involved in what they assumed was a vendetta. Fair enough. But I found the history of Marco Polo and Leco d'Italia far more compelling than the cheap quarrel that led me there. The paper's contentious past and the personalities involved and the mysteries that remained fascinated me. Many in the community couldn't understand my interest, but Foschi did. Maybe that's the story. It's elusive. It's sort of like the Fata Morgana. Uh, it appears and it disappears. The truth is never set in stone, but that's the story. That is your Canada Land. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com where you'll find a whole bunch of other terrific podcasts that we release. This episode was reported by Marcello DeCintio and produced with the help of Danielle Paradi. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by SoCold. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Ryan Thorpe, reporter at the Winnipeg Free Press and uh, podcaster with CBC's White Hot Hate. Welcome to Shortcuts. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Jesse. Ryan, today we're going to talk about the shadowy cabal of globalist elites who are controlling the world's economy in secret and who release fun, shareable YouTube content. Telling us all about it. Sounds uh, pretty spooky. Glad to have you here where we talk about the news. Ryan, here's a piece in the Globe and Mail recently written by Campbell Clark. Headline is, the WEF conspiracy theory is in the conservative leadership race and Canada's main streets. 
I know that you spend a lot of your time as a journalist in the like fringier corners of the extreme right. Are you familiar with this World Economic Forum conspiracy theory? I am. Yeah. Honestly, it's a bit similar to some other conspiracy theories that we've seen in the past. Um, but, you know, over the past couple of years, I would say I've um, heard more and more chatter about uh, the shadowy kind of World Economic Forum and, you know, the concerns that seemingly increasing numbers of Canadians have about, I guess, their influence on our national politics. I'm going to try to explain this theory to people as best I can. I don't claim to be any kind of great expert on it, but it's something that, like, I've noticed has been popping up more and more. Reporter Justin Ling, who also looks at some of the corners that you look at, says that this has become ubiquitous in recent days. And the first thing that struck me about it is, like, if the big conspiracy in the world is being conducted by the World Economic Forum, as far as, like, secret shadowy groups go, they're pretty damn public. They have a YouTube channel with uh, over 700,000 subscribers where they just sort of explain their ideas uh, through, like, you know, high production, valuable, shareable videos. Let's hear a bit from this video called The Great Reset. We have an incredible opportunity to create entirely new sustainable industries, investing in nature as the true engine of our economy. The current global crisis has disrupted every aspect of our lives. Bertis has also presented us with an extraordinary opportunity, a chance to reset and accelerate efforts to improve the state of our world. What I love about this conspiracy theory is that it's sort of like reverse engineered because as I understand Davos, as I understand the World Economic Forum, it's not that dissimilar from like the TED conference, you know? It's a commercial enterprise that is heavily marketed, very slick, and which purports to be kind of this congregation of influential thought leaders where, you know, it's very expensive to go and they dole out these sort of status rewards of like who gets invited or who gets on this list or who's like a youth global leader. And they sort of want everybody to think. The whole purpose of this is like this is where the richest people and the ruling class come and it's like a fun getaway in Switzerland. And like any conference, it's an excuse to go and socialize on somebody else's dime. But the kind of brand is this is where the powerful get together to make plans and to talk about big ideas. And the initial idea, as I understand it, is like, it's supposed to be a good look. The billionaires of the world and the politicians of the world are not just some self-interested group. They actually are interested in putting their minds together to solve the big problems. That's the faint, that's the gloss. But turning that into a conspiracy theory kind of turns it on its head. And it's a great conspiracy theory because there's no shortage of marketing materials that describe that exact thing. Like here they are, telling on themselves, explaining how they are getting together these elites, these rich people going to Switzerland to plan the world's future, when that is exactly what they're pretending to do. In fact, I can't think of people who are less interested in changing the world than billionaires. Like, the world's working really well for billionaires. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And um, I know that the World Economic Forum, at least in the, the context of Canadian politics, has pointed in the past to, you know, the number of cabinet ministers under the current liberal government that, you know, were identified as young leaders by the WEF, you know, it's a way of them to try and signal their importance and their influence, but it's backfired on them a little bit because now 
those precise things that they were trumpeting are being pointed to as evidence of this kind of conspiracy. And, um, you know, it begins with the Great Reset clip that you just pointed there, this video that they put out, which was really just kind of a call for progressive reforms and, you know, a, a kind of moving towards more green economies. And then it just picked up steam throughout the pandemic. And it, it kind of morphs like a game of telephone where now the pandemic is a pretext for a radical agenda or or a takeover. But it, it, to me, honestly, it, it's not, this conspiracy theory isn't new. It's very similar to, you know, something we've heard of for like, uh, say, like New World Order conspiracy theories. And if you, you know, want to dive deep enough down into the history, you know, it leads back to some pretty common anti-Semitic tropes, I would say, about kind of, you know, shadowy Jewish cabal and financiers that are kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. Yeah, this is old stuff, Rothschilds, and, you know, that, like, you know, your your nation state doesn't matter, your politician's just a puppet, there's actually a a global government, a globalist government. It's Jewish bankers. That's the old story. And actually, there's a pretty Canadian inflection point in this. If you wanted to prove that this isn't just some like fun getaway where these people, you know, high five each other, but this is actually where they set the agenda for the world and the politicians are just their puppets. Well, what do you know? Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau picks up on this notion of the Great Reset. Now, everybody with the pandemic was talking about, oh, this is not just a tragedy or this is not just a disruption. This is a great opportunity to, to, to solve some of the world's problems. Like everybody was talking about build back better. Here's Trudeau in November 2021, explicitly, it seems, picking up on the language from the World Economic Forum. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. If you want to, you could see that as evidence that like Trudeau takes his marching orders from uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, or you could see it as evidence that like Trudeau is just sort of lazy and borrowing his marketing and his terminology from uh, somebody else's PR campaign. Everybody's talking about this exact same concept, but through this lens, the conspiracy starts to confirm itself and pretty soon you get like this guy, Aaron McNeil on, on Instagram, and this is the conclusion that he reaches. Let's just say how it is, okay? If you don't know this by now, then You've been watching too much CTV and uh, CBC and Global News and CP24 and all that stuff. You've been watching too much of it, okay? The Liberals and the NDP, they work directly for the World Economic Forum, okay? How they can get away with that is beyond me, but nonetheless, that's what's going on. That's what they're doing. And they're gonna crush the economy. They're gonna keep the federal mandates in place. They're gonna roll out the digital identification system and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, the Trudeau clip you played, I mean, you know in advance what people are gonna do with that clip, right? It's clearly, as you kind of point out, he's just cribbing language that, you know, the, a talking point from other people and using it for his own purposes. But if you, you cut that clip, you isolate it, you know, you throw it in a video with some like ominous music behind it or something. And, um, you know, people are going to interpret it in a much different way. It, it makes me think of there was a famous speech that George H.W. Bush gave in the early 90s where he used the phrase new world order. And um, he was talking about like, you know, just like a post kind of Cold War, establishing a post Cold War global order. But then that phrase gets isolated and handled the same way and pointed to as evidence of some sort of nefarious conspiracy that's going on among leaders. And, you 
you know, it's no surprise that people in Canada are, are, are kind of moving in that, that same direction. It's utterly expected, I would say. Before we just sort of like laugh off these people, it's interesting to look at the world through their point of view, not to kind of like devil's advocate themselves, but like almost to like recognize how much of it is true just through a different lens. Like I'm looking at some of their literature, I guess. What is this new world order that they're afraid of that uh, the World Economic Forum is trying to impose upon us? It's a world in which the end of fossil fuels is imposed upon us. It's a world in which the struggling farmer isn't allowed to have grazing livestock anymore, the end of irrigation. Well, that's actually consistent. Like, that's true. There are plots to get rid of fossil fuels. There are plots to get rid of industrial farming. And, you know, you, you go through the whole thing, that one world military. Well, I, you know, I guess you could call NATO, like, a move towards a one world military, Universal basic income through one lens is like a very necessary idea. Through another, it's it's another imposition towards sort of stripping us all of our autonomy, our ability to earn money, and, you know, making us all vaccinated and under some sort of social credit system. Everything that happens, whether it's environmentalism or towards campaigns for social justice, has this sort of shadow version of itself where it's something that's being imposed upon us by this global cabal to, I don't know what, I don't know what they would actually get out of this new world order like that they don't already have. It's the kind of conspiracy theory that will endlessly affirm and confirm itself. Now, that's the conspiracy theory as I understand it. And why I'm getting into it now is not just because the Globe and Mail has been citing it or because it's become so ubiquitous, but because of Pierre Polyev. Now, Pierre Polyev, like through any rational analysis of who this guy is. He came up under Harper, who attended the World Economic Forum in Davos. He works with John Baird, who attended the World Economic Forum. He is absolutely an establishment figure. The idea that it's just the NDP and the liberals who are somehow influenced by the World Economic Forum is just counterfactual. And any kind of concept of Polyev as, as like some kind of disruptive politician who's like going to shatter the status quo is like a head-scratcher compared to his pedigree. And yet, I saw him grilling Mark Carney and calling him a Davos elite, right? He has been railing on very specific targeted issues like the Bank of Canada. Our central bank has been printing money to inflate prices. The solution is, of course, to fire the gatekeepers. I've already announced that I will fire the governor of the central bank to get inflation under control. That's why they've been doing it. They've been printing money to inflate crisis. The solution is, of course, to fire the gatekeepers. I've already announced that I will fire the governor of the central bank to get inflation under control. Now, of course, inflation is rampant throughout the world right now. And this notion that the Bank of Canada is trying to inflate crisis, like this all sounds very compatible with World Economic Forum conspiracy theory. Fire the gatekeepers without explicitly citing the conspiracy theory. This feels like it's, you know, a part of that conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah. I have a few different thoughts on that. I mean, one thing in terms of Polyev's uh, attacks on the banks, I thought Andrew Coyne made a really good point in the Globe and Mail where he looks like, what? okay, what are the actual proposals here? What is he putting forth? And when you you cash it out, there's really nothing there. You know, he's going to have their books audited. Well, their their books already are audited. He's now kind of stepped it up and is, and is saying that he's going to fire the head of the Bank of Canada. I suppose that's one kind of tangible, concrete 
thing that he's saying he's going to do, but I think it's really just a convenient target for him. It's pretty much straight out of the the kind of right-wing populist playbook where it doesn't really matter if the solutions you're proposing are effective in any way. What matters is having the right enemies, you know, elites, bankers, traditional institutions of power, liberals. And that seems to be what he's doing here. And I do think he's kind of playing with fire. Like, I I don't think he's, uh, he's not dumb. He he knows what he's doing. I don't think he buys into kind of these, you know, conspiracy theories, but he's leaning in a little bit. And I believe he's even said that under, you know, a Pierre Polyev government, his ministers wouldn't be going to Davos. Like, he knows what he's doing by making that comment. It's kind of a wink and a nod to um, these kind of fringier conspiratorial beliefs. And yeah, I think it's actually, it's it's pretty dangerous in, in a number of different ways. I want to kind of describe the, the political theater that's playing out and just how savvy Polyev is. Uh, you know, you call him smart. I think he's like kind of a brilliant strategist in his ability to pick up on populist strains, but also to trigger the exact kind of responses from the establishment that perpetuate this idea without necessarily getting too deeply invested in anything that's going to explode. And, and you know, anybody, as we've discussed previously on the show, he can express fealty to the truckers and leave it to Jean Charest to say, well, that makes you a friend of racists. And his response is, well, I never said anything pro-racist, you know, and indeed he did not. He's very selective. So when he talks about Davos in a specific way, he's not actually saying there is a conspiracy of the World Economic Forum. He's just saying, uh, you know, that whole thing has a bad look. I don't want to be a part of it. And if I'm in charge, my people won't have anything to do with it. Similarly, when he talks about Bitcoin, well, if you don't want to have the Bank of Canada or like, you know, governed banks or currency that the government has any control over, then that's sort of what the cryptocurrency world is all about. So all of this is like, I don't know if there's like a word for a loud wink, like wink feels too (laughs) subtle. Like it feels much more, (laughs) we need a word for for a loud wink. But, you know, the second part of this, Ryan, which is I think where the media plays right into his hands, like you're you're right. Andrew Coyne is is apt when he calls Pierre Polyev's rhetoric baseless and a dozen other people are correct. This is like a media criticism in which I don't actually disagree with anybody I'm going to criticize here. But the collective impact of the pearl clutching, the monocles popping out, like what he has inspired is like he couldn't have written it better himself. What am I talking about here? Let me just run through the headlines. In response to Polyev going after the governor of the Bank of Canada, here's what's been written. Uh, Globe and Mail. Campbell Clark, for Pierre Polyev, undermining the Bank of Canada brings an easy political reward. Andrew Coyne, Pierre Polyev's baseless campaign to restore the Bank of Canada's independence is, in fact, an assault on it. John Ibbotson, also in the Globe, why Pierre Polyev should reconsider his rhetoric about firing the Bank of Canada governor. Also Globe and Mail, Conrad Yakubuski, Pierre Polyev's vow to fire the Bank of Canada governor is reckless. Also Globe and Mail, Gary Mason, the danger Pierre Polyev's corrosive campaign poses to Canada. So it really feels like all of the establishment voices are just shitting themselves, like like they're fumfing, like, oh, 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 this is out of line, sir. You've gone too far, which is exactly what the establishment would do if, in fact, there was a shadowy global elite that, like, didn't want the, how dare you the, the, the Bank of Canada. It just goes on and on. And I guess my criticism is that 
in taking him at face value and actually arguing with him as if this is a rational argument that he's putting forth, you know, like, sir, this is a bad idea. Your rhetoric is overblown. That's not actually what's happening. Like the actual editorial response to Pierre Polyev is like, dude, you're going to govern in a technocratic way that is going to be almost identical to how Stephen Harper governed. If there is an establishment, you are a key member of it and you're posturing. This is bull****. There's no real policy alternative that you're putting forth. I guess that's said in these pieces. It just feels like there's like a sense of like uh, haplessness in watching this all play out in a way that is just like, it feels like it couldn't be better for his intentions. Yeah, I think what's happening is in some sense, they're taking the bait. And what's most shocking about the kind of headlines that you just riffed off from the Globe and Mail is I don't even think you hit all of them, right? And if I have a media criticism point to make on this, it's just like everyone's writing the same column. I felt like I read the same column over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing kind of new or particularly (laughs) insightful or original about it. So I don't think just running the same column making the same points, attacking him over and over again is going to be, um, I don't think it's particularly effective and I don't think it's it's particularly insightful either. But yeah, one thing that came to mind is just like when he's attacking the Bank of Canada, I'm certainly no economics expert, but I think the, the kind of fundamental argument he's making is he has concerns over kind of like injecting too much liquidity into the economy and how that might impact inflation. And, you know, that's a valid kind of economic argument that you can put forth and different economists could have a debate about it. But then he takes that kind of reasonable starting point and then pumps it up into something that is kind of far more conspiratorial. And it brought to mind the point you were making about trying to understand the kind of World Economic Forum conspiracy theories through the eyes of the people that support it, which is like they're not fabricating things out of whole cloth, right? It's like they're starting with some sort of kernel or grain of truth and then twisting and contorting it in such an extensive way that you end up in a pretty kind of wild place. And I think that, you know, there's almost kind of something similar happening here where you start out with a very basic kind of economic argument. And then somehow it gets turned into like the Bank of Canada is purposely causing, uh, you know, kind of economic inflation, which is obviously absurd. But yeah, no, I mean, it does seem like the media has been taking the bait a little bit. And I imagine it's kind of playing into Polyev's hands perfectly. I imagine that's what he wants to do. He knows the line that he can walk up to. He knows where it is. He doesn't cross it. And then when everyone loses their heads, he gets to point at them and say, see, the establishment is scared of this movement um, and scared of, of, of my political campaign. Just to kind of conclude by doing something really stupid, I just want to kind of like acknowledge that Davos is gross. You know, to look at what happens at the World Economic Forum, to look at these people who are incredibly privileged and wealthy and pretending to be like, all we care about is saving the world. And to imagine that all of their rhetoric about like, we're going to reset the world for your own good might ultimately not benefit me personally as an individual or you personally as an individual to be worried about like, you guys smugly think you're going to solve it for everybody, but you're going to limit my ability to take like a plane ride and you're going to limit my ability to run my farm or you're going to limit my ability to, I don't know, get naturopathic medicine. Like within all of these fears is a totally legitimate concern because the truth is they're not totally in good faith and they're not going to go far enough with these reforms to actually reorganize society in a way that's beneficial to the population. So like you're kind of right if you suspect 
that they're using this opportunity for a power grab, that they are spending tons of public money on a number of initiatives that might not ultimately benefit you. Like, there's so much about this that could be sustenance for a really good political discourse and a really good political conflict. If that happened not on planet Cuckoo Land, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's 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 absolutely spot on, I think. And then the other thing that just, you know, I think is funny about all of this, and you've kind of touched upon it a little bit, is just the the spokesman for this movement, Pierre Polyev. I mean, he is of the establishment, right? He was voted into um, the House of Commons News 24, 25. It's pretty much all he's done with his life. My understanding of his background before then is he only really worked in politics. I don't think that this is a guy who has any sort of private sector, real world experience outside of the political world. And, um, and you look at his kind of economic policies, like he's like a kind of a libertarian conservative guy. I guarantee you he's got like Hayek on his book shelf and could probably quote it off the top of his head. And the idea that he's going to clutch his pearls and be all worried about Davos, it's like, no, those are those are his people, right? That's where all like the kind of the Hayek lovers uh, gather. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of just like neoliberal politics through and through over there. And I guarantee he doesn't have any sort of serious kind of substantive economic disagreements with that. But it's now become politically convenient for him to point to it as this kind of boogeyman. And he's seizing the opportunity, you know, and and I imagine it has been a boon to his prime ministerial hopes. Yeah. And we seem sort of like, as a whole, in the Canadian media, completely impotent or incompetent to sort of counter that or, or, or to see it. Yeah. And in some cases are even playing into it, I think. That's Shortcuts. Ryan, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadaland.com, where we are firing uh, with all cylinders. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read what you send. Ryan, where can people read your work? Where can people find you? You can find all my reporting in the Winnipeg Free Press, and you can find me on Twitter at RK underscore Thorpe. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at CFUV.ca. 